0: Hello, this is Gary Hutchins with the Sunny Slope Church of Christ here in Omaha, Nebraska. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible class. This is a Bible class that we podcast for people who cannot be with us in person at the Sunny Slope Church of Christ for midweek Bible classes. Now, we know there are people in the Omaha area who cannot be with us at prescribed times because of scheduling conflicts, or maybe they they have health problems or physical problems. And we know that there are people who listen in other parts of the country and literally around the world. And so we're thankful to be able to teach God's Word through this medium of the internet and by means of these podcasts to everybody who wants to be in, in a Bible study. And we know that a whole lot of people, they want to study God's Word. They want to listen to the Word being taught. And we're thankful to have the opportunity, the means, and the ability to do this. And God gets the glory, bottom line. But we also pray for souls, and that's important to us through these teachings. We encourage you to share these studies with everybody you can through Facebook friends, text messages, and other technological means. You may help somebody turn their life around. You may help somebody grow in their faith, come closer to God, and even get to heaven. What a great blessing for them and for you. So make that commitment and start sharing. We also encourage you to tell everybody to go to the website, our website, churchofchrist.com, churchofchrist.com, click on the podcast button, and sign up for our podcasting. It is absolutely free. It always will be free. There'll be no charge ever, and when somebody signs up for our podcasting, they will automatically receive Wednesday night Bible class, Sunday morning Bible class, all of our sermons, and a great deal more... Bible teaching every day, seven days a week. And that will be automatic, go right to their smart device, and it will always be free. So take advantage of it yourself and tell everybody else you know to do so as well. We're going to get back into our study from the gospel account according to John. And of course, the gospel account is the gospel of Jesus Christ, his ministry upon this earth. And John is the apostle who was the penman chosen by God to write this particular gospel account. And as we've emphasized in these particular studies, John is a gospel account that kind of stands alone in that it is written with a – from a different well, – well, with a different emphasis, so to speak – Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels. They are basically parallel in the material that they cover, that they present to the reader. John kind of stands alone in that it does not go down that particular same line. Now, it is absolutely faithful to the ministry of Jesus, but it it emphasizes kind of different things than Matthew, Mark, and Luke emphasize. So not quite as much of a... Document documentary, you know, historical step-by-step, step. Jesus went here, Jesus went there, Jesus did this and did that, but rather more of a general focus upon Jesus as the Savior and the example that he presented before us as he lived upon this earth and went through his public ministry. We're going to pick up with chapter four today, chapter four. I'm going to, going to begin reading with verse one. And again, when these books of the Bible were, were originally written, they were written in one manuscript. Each book was one manuscript. They were not divided into chapters and verses. Again, somebody came along and did that later on. Uh, that was simply, a you know, a devising or kind of an, you know, if you want to think of it as an editing by, uh, by mankind, that's fine. Now, they did not change the verses of Scripture. They did not change the text. They simply tried to figure out, okay, this would be a good break between this verse and the next verse, and this would be a good break between this chapter and the next chapter, and sometimes they don't necessarily uh, fit that bill, so to speak, as, as easily or as best, as well as they could. And so, when we look at verse one of chapter four, uh, that may be one of the cases. Maybe the person who divided chapter four from chapter three could have could have waited a verse or two before he made that particular break. But again, we we can understand. We can understand how they flow together. And I'm thankful that somebody did. You know, break these into verses and chapters because that makes it a whole lot easier for us as readers and teachers to reference specific texts. So, just think about it: if if the the Gospel account according to John was all one manuscript with no breaks in it whatsoever, and you wanted to reference a particular what we call a verse of Scripture somewhere in the middle. How would, you, how would you guide the listener or the reader you're trying to work with to get to that particular verse of Scripture as we would understand it today? Well, so you see, 21 chapters, uh, we can look at chapter 4 and verse 1, we know exactly where to go. We can, get, we can access it quickly and easily. But if it was all one manuscript with no breaks, no chapters, no verses, how would we Tell somebody, okay, I want you to turn over to this particular statement here, you know, in what we would understand as chapter four and verse one. Yeah. So again, thankful that somebody did that and and even when maybe the breaks are not the most the most uh, beneficial places to break from a verse to another verse or a chapter to another chapter, it's okay. We can understand that it, it all flows together. So chapter four, verse one, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. Interesting. First, Chapter 4, verse 1 states that Jesus, in his his ministry, he came to the point where he was baptizing more disciples, and again, disciple simply means follower, than John, his cousin, the immerser. Remember, going back to chapter 3 and verse 30, John said, he, speaking of Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Now, as we've emphasized, There's at least one large denomination in which I think a whole lot, even probably of the preachers in that particular denomination, believe that John established the church. John never established any church on this earth. John came to prepare the way for Jesus to come and establish his church, but John is not the father of any church he did not state that he was going to establish a church. He stated that he came to prepare the way for Jesus to come shortly after him. And when Jesus appeared on the scene, as we noted repeatedly in John chapter 1, he identified Jesus as the Christ, as the Savior. And here in chapter 3, in verse 30, he said, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Well, God prophesied of the coming of Jesus in the Old Testament Scriptures, he went into a great deal of detail in that just in Isaiah chapter 53. John simply was sort of tilling the soil, so to speak, if you want to think from an agricultural uh, illustration. And, And so that when Jesus came, the people would be more ready to receive him. More ready to accept that he is, that he did come as the Savior, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. And so when it says in verse one of chapter four that that Jesus, and we would see it would seem to indicate shortly into his public ministry, was baptizing more followers than John was, that would be fitting. That would be the natural uh, result of his stepping in and identifying himself as the Savior that John had foretold was coming. And so John said back in chapter 3 and verse 30, he, that is Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. And here's one example of that. very natural example. Jesus was baptizing more followers than was John, and John would fade more and more into the background, and ultimately, John would be beheaded by Herod, King Herod, and uh, here, Jesus is the Savior. Now, it's interesting also in verse 2 that it says, a parenthetical statement, that Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. He did not do the physical baptizing, but his disciples did. And I think we can understand the apostles did the actual physical baptizing. That does not diminish or take away in any way, to any degree, the importance of of baptism. The fact that that people, as they came to him, accepted him, believed in him as the Savior, come to earth, were being baptized, emphasizes the importance of baptism. Now, a lot of people, a lot of churches try to do, try to kind of diminish that importance, and that's wrong. That's unscriptural. Verse, verse 3, then we see where he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there, Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, and thus by the well, it was about the sixth hour. Now, Jacob's well, you think about historical, uh, you know, writings going all the way back to Genesis and the early chapters of Exodus, of but really all the way back to Genesis, think about how many hundreds of years ago that well had been dug by Jacob you're talking about many hundreds of years before you know you're you really talking about maybe as much as a thousand or close to a thousand years before and that well was still there my how god is the magnificent creator the magnificent creator he put the water in the ground he put the clouds in the air so that the surface water could be replenished on an ongoing basis through rain and moisture falling upon the ground. And that well that was dug somewhere around a thousand years before, still there, still serving the people. Again, God is the magnificent creator. Don't ever let anybody tell you all that just happened by accident, just kind of, you know, by chance. Design demands a designer. And God is the designer behind the creation of everything we see around us. So he comes, Jesus comes, he's gone to Galilee, got to go through Samaria. And so it's, it's about the sixth hour. He is wearied, it says, from the journey. So, you know, how, how did he journey? Yeah, very possibly by foot. But even if it was, you know, if he was riding a donkey or whatever, you, know, you get tired after a while. All you have to do is think about... How far advanced technologically we are in travel abilities today, and yet we still get tired traveling, don't we? Now we can get in, a, in an automobile and we can drive seventy miles down the interst- seventy miles per hour down the interstate. We can drive for five or six or seven hundred miles, but you're tired by the end of that day. Or you can get in a plane and you can fly from one side of the, you know, of, the, of the country to the other side, but you may be in the air for four or five hours. Uh, you get tired, don't you? You get off that plane, you've, you know, you've journeyed through the airport, you've gone through the terminal, all of that, You know, moved your luggage and everything. Well, you're tired by the end. Well, just imagine if you had to walk 50 or 60 miles in a day, or maybe ride on the back of a donkey for 50 or 60 miles in a day, you'd be tired. You'd be tired. And so he naturally comes to the point where he's wearied from his journey and he sat by the well, Jacob's well. It was about the sixth hour, about the sixth hour. So sixth hour, what would that be? About noon? Uh, For the Jewish people, the day started at six o'clock in the morning. And so the sixth hour would be about 12 o'clock, noon. And so a woman of Samaria comes to draw water. Verse 7, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So Jesus stayed by the well. The disciples went in, the apostles went in to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, Samaria, interesting. It was a land that had once belonged to Israel as part of Israel and Samaria would have been the northern, in the northern part of that. Now, The Samaritans, after the captivity, the northern ten tribes were taken into captivity by the Assyrians, and the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were taken into captivity years later by the Babylonians. And by taken into captivity, I mean they were literally taken from the land, taken to foreign lands, and put there under, well, under the supervision of the first, the, 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 the Assyrian government and then, and military, and then the Babylonian government and military. And they stayed there for, you know, decades and decades, And, in fact, the ten tribes to the north, a lot of them just stayed there. That was where they grew up. They were born. They were there for so long. The same thing was true for the southern tribes. Now, Babylon was ultimately conquered by the Persians, the Medo-Persians. But, you know, when you think about a group of people living in a foreign land for 40 years, say, you know, let alone 60 or 70 years, well, that's, that's their land, basically. At least that's where they're used to you know they group they're born there grew up there they know the culture there they know the language there and so basically it's home to them and so a whole lot a huge percentage of the population of the israelites when they had been taken captive and removed from their land they never came back but contingents did come back ultimately in time for the southern two tribes, Judah and, and, and Bethlehem, that, that was 70 years later. The contingents started coming back. And now the Samaritans, though, after a period of time, the, the Assyrian government sent back some of the people. But they became something of a mongrel race, if you want to think of it that way, in the eyes of the, of the you know, blood-pure Israelites, because they began intermarrying and they began setting up uh, religious pursuits, religious beliefs, and teachings and practices that were not in accordance to the Old Testament law of Moses. And so, it came to be that the Israelites, when they came back, and they would become known as the Jews, when they came back uh, to the tribes to, to the to the land to the south they they did not have much to do with the Samaritans to the north. They no longer called them really Israelites or Jews. They were the Samaritans, and they basically had little to do with them. And there was even some, I believe, some understanding that A lot of times, instead of traveling through Samaria to get to the land to the north of Samaria, they'd actually bypass it and go around it, because they so looked down upon the Samaritans, what they had become. So here's the reason behind this. This young lady states to Jesus, "You're, "You're talking to me, a Samaritan. You're a Jew. You're talking to me, a Samaritan," and again. Then the statement at the end of that you know, question from the lady, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, living water. We can read about that also in chapter 7 and verse 38. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you, where then do you get that living water? Well, she's thinking of physical water and Jesus is speaking of spiritual sustenance. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him Will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus is speaking from a spiritual perspective. The woman, she's wondering, how can you give me living water? You don't have anything to draw with, even. The well's deep. And she mentions the well had been dug by their forefather going way back, many hundreds of years before, Jacob. And Jesus is trying to give her a lesson here from, you know, a, a, or a spiritual lesson. And, and he says, look, anybody who drinks out of this well, they're going to get thirsty again. They're going to have to come back to the well or some other body of water where they can get some more water and, and quench their thirst once again. And that's going to happen over and over and over again all through their life. But the, but the water that I'm talking about is spiritual and you will never thirst. This will spring up within you a self-sustaining, you know, if we can think of it that way, fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. He's He's talking about a sustenance unto eternal life in heaven. He's the Savior, remember. Now, verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, that I might not thirst, nor come here to draw. She's still thinking physical water. Hey, give me this water so I don't ever have to come and draw water again and carry it back to the village, however far that was. Now, you think about a tedious task. I I had an aunt and uncle one time. They've been gone for many years now. But I remember as a young boy visiting them way back off the road, it seemed to me, in Tennessee. They were out in the country, and uh, their source of water, fresh water, was a spring. But the spring was, in my, you know, little boy memory, my, you know, my mind's eye going back then, it seemed like it was a pretty good walk from their house back to the spring and there was a cover on the spring and he, you know, they would take the cover off the spring, dip dip a bucket in there, draw water out of it, cover the spring back up, the entrance to the spring, and then carry it back to the house well, aren't you glad we don't have to do that in our country right now? Aren't you glad we can just go into the kitchen or the bathroom uh, or maybe the laundry room, turn on a faucet, and there's the water running right into the sink? How wonderful that is, how easy that is for us. Well, this woman, she's she's thinking, hey, you got water? You're offering water that, that will enab- enable me to never have to come back to this well and dip a bucket into it and draw it? from, you know, draw from it and then, you know, probably through some kind of rope and pulley system, you know, draw it up and then carry it back to the village, to my home. I, I want that water so I don't have ever have to come back and draw water from this well again. Well, in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Now, that might seem like an odd request from Jesus at this point, go call your husband. They've been talking about living water. They've been talking about the well. He struck up the conversation with her when he said, "Give me a drink." And she said, uh, "You're talking to me? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman? You're talking to me?" you know, and the understanding was, without even speaking it, that Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans. And so, after the discussion has progressed some, Jesus says, "Hey, go call your husband." And um, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. Well, see, Jesus again came as the teacher of the gospel message of salvation, forgiveness and salvation. He knew she had no husband, He simply said, hey, go call your husband. Bring him here. Uh, Have no husband. Jesus knew that exactly. He then begins to recite to her. You've said the truth. You have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. You might wonder, uh, could she have really had five husbands die on her? But then remember, he says, you're living with a man as though you were married, I, I think is the understanding. And he's not even your husband. You're not even married to him. Well, probably she was a rather promiscuous woman. And she's learning a spiritual lesson here to some degree, gradually at least. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She had never laid eyes on Jesus before. And she had no idea that he had ever laid eyes on her. And yet he's telling her intimate details of her life. She says, I, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where, you ought, where one ought to worship. Well, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. They were worshiping idols. The Samaritans worshipped idols. Now they tried to mix that to some degree at least with worshiping God but that will not work. And so he says you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. And for salvation is of the Jews. Now in other words, he's talking about God was using the bloodline of Israel, the Jews, to bring the savior into the world. They had the Old Testament prophecies pointing to the coming savior. So he says We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Idols are nothing. They're pieces of rock or wood or metal. They're nothing. They are not not gods, and whatever supposed deity that they're supposed to represent in those physical formations do not exist. There is one God. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so Jesus is giving her further, broader spiritual lessons here. You worship idols, you don't even know what you're worshiping. We know what we're worshiping. For salvation is of the Jews. Now Jesus, you know, was really speaking about himself. He is the savior, and he had already come as the savior. The woman said to him, "I know the Messiah, I know that Messiah is coming." Well, again, the Samaritans, they mixed worship with God and belief in God with the belief in their idols and worshipping their idols. But again, that is unacceptable before God. So she says, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, and now he brings it all out, gets down to the bottom line. He's already told her about her life when he, from a physical perspective, would have had no way of knowing that she had been married five times and she was living with a man right now that she wasn't married to. So verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She just said, we know the Messiah is coming. We know the Savior is coming, the Christ. And he's going to tell us all things when he comes. And Jesus identifies himself. I am that one. In verse 27, at this point, his disciples came. They had been to the city or the village to get to buy food. They come back. And they marveled that he talked with a woman Yet no one said, "What do you seek?" or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, "Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? So she goes, "She's become so impressed. And when Jesus said, "I am the Messiah that you're that you're talking about, she's, you know, at least probably eighty percent of the way, Believing that as being the absolute truth, she leaves her water pot there. She goes into the city. She starts telling the men, Come see one who has told me everything, you know, uh, er, er, everything about me. And uh, could this be the Christ? Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to him. Now, what a response. The men start leaving the city. They start going out to meet this man that she's been telling them about. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat, speaking to Jesus. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. He's talking from a spiritual perspective again. They're thinking physical food. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Huh. You know, there have been times when I I believed I needed to go do some work for the Lord. Maybe it was going to be in the evening. I was tired, but I thought, no, I need to go do this. Whatever it might be, maybe go make some visits to some people who needed to be visited. And so I would go ahead and do that. And by the time I got home, the feeling tired part had pretty much left my mind and my conscience. I felt better for having gone and done what I needed to do in serving the Lord. Well, so Jesus tells the apostles here, the disciples, uh, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, in other words, the will of God, and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest." Now, I suspect he's talking about, look at the men coming out of that city, coming toward us right now. The fields are already white to harvest. The souls that can be brought to God through me are already coming this way. And he who reaps, he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together for in this the saying is true one sows and another reaps i sent you to reap that for that for which you have not labored others have labored and you have not and you have entered into their labors well john had been out there preparing the soil for jesus to come and ultimately for the apostles to be teaching as when jesus would go back to heaven after his resurrection from the tomb. And so, you know, in in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the apostle Paul wrote along that same line. He said, I have planted, Apollos has watered, God gives the increase. There, in the lives of many people, there's not just one teacher who teaches them the gospel and then they respond and become a Christian but there may be two or three different people or more who have influence on them to change their lives spiritually and to come to Christ. So, I have sent you to reap for which which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. Now, verse 39, many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Now, can you imagine the amount of teaching Jesus did to those before those men during those two days? Verse 41, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Wow, what a great lesson for us today. They came to hear Jesus teach about being the Savior, and they believed, and they accepted him as the Savior. What a great lesson for us today. We need to be in God's Word. People everywhere all over the world need to be in God's Word because that is the basis for our faith to develop and grow stronger and stronger. Romans 10 and verse 17. And if there was ever a time in the history of our world that mankind needed to come to Jesus, now would be one of those times. May God guide us to be the example that he wants us to be before others. He used this woman, who I think we're to understand, had been living a sinful life. He used her to reach out to the men of her city and tell them about the Savior. And they came to hear the Savior teach, and they believed in him. Praise God. Let's pray. We'll finish this chapter next time. Father in heaven, your word is so powerful. And we look forward to the time when we can be with you and with Jesus and the Holy Spirit in heaven. Help us to walk the walk that will bring us there. And that walk would be a belief, a faith that leads us to be obedient to your teachings and to be active in glorifying you through our service to you while still alive in this world. Help us to help others come to you, Father, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please guide us in this. Please forgive us and hear a prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.